Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pull down a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but as is the case today, they may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. From time to time on Putting on the Mind of Christ, I feature an explicitly pro-life event. This is such a program. Several weeks ago, I attended and recorded a presentation sponsored by a local parish and the Guadalupe Partners, a pregnancy counseling group. It was a beautiful summer evening. The physical setting was serene. The birds seemed exceptionally vocal. The brothers and sisters who gathered also seemed to be exceptionally chatty. They were full of the joy of the Lord. The subject could be perceived as a dark one, abortion. But there is hope. This gathering was full of it. The attendees were there for a training session to develop skills as sidewalk counselors outside abortion, so-called clinics. The setting was one of the meeting rooms at Christ the King Parish. The hostess was Barb Harburg. She has over 20 years' experience as a sidewalk counselor. She and her husband have successfully raised their family with their mindset. One of their sons, Nate, has walked across the country as part of a pro-life demonstration and is now a seminarian at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. Other speakers included Edmund Miller, a teacher at one of the Spirit of Sanctus Academies in Ann Arbor. He has 18 years counseling experience. The other speaker is a relatively newcomer, Alicia Wong. She joined with Mr. Miller two years ago to form Guadalupe Partners. We'll listen in on their training session right after these messages. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. This week on Putting on the Mind of Christ, we're all in training. In training to become or be able to support in prayer sidewalk counselors outside abortion mills. The sidewalk counseling training session was hosted by Barb Harburg, the Respect Life Chairman at Christ the King Parish in Ann Arbor. Following her opening, full-time English teacher and part-time sidewalk counselor Edmund Miller begins our training. Alicia Wong shares her talents with us in a few minutes. To open our program in prayer, here is Barb Harburg. My name is Barb Harburg, and I'm the Respect Life Chairman at Christ the King, and I want to welcome everybody here to the sidewalk counseling trainings. We're privileged tonight to have two sidewalk counselors that have had a lot of experience and 
I have worked with both of them. Just a little bit about myself and my background. I started sidewalk counseling 20 years ago. It was at Women Care, which is now closed, praise God, in Ypsilanti. And there was just two of us that I'm aware of in Washington County. And a man named Joe Iskra, who I'm not even sure if he's alive anymore, trained us. He used to do sidewalk counseling in Detroit. And he learned from another man who lives in Chicago. His name is Joe Scheidler. He's a champion pro-life man. Once he goes to the Lord, he should be canonized for all of his pro-life work because he's the one who really began pro-life action and trying to take the message to the streets and save babies and mothers right at the abortion clinics. I won't go on any more than that. There's a booklet that I have gotten from Father Frank Pavone, who is priest for life. Some of you may be aware of him. There's a very wonderful prayer here that I'd like us to pray that he wrote. It's a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Then I'll introduce our speakers. O Holy Spirit of God, you were promised to us by the Lord Jesus as an advocate, as one who pleads our cause and speaks up for us in the heights of heaven. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. The Apostle Paul has taught us that you intercede for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in speech. We praise you today for the gift of salvation, for we are deeply aware that we cannot save ourselves. We have sinned, and we cannot win forgiveness on our own. We need an advocate. We ask you, O Holy Spirit, to make us ever more aware of those who need us as advocates. Grant that we may hear the cries of our youngest, smallest brothers and sisters, those still in the womb who cannot speak or defend themselves and who cannot even pray. Holy Spirit, as you are the advocate, so make us advocates. As you hear our cries for mercy, so let us hear the cries of others for mercy. Save us from the misfortune of seeking mercy only for ourselves while being deaf to others. As you loosen the tongues of the apostles at Pentecost, so grant us today a Pentecost for the unborn, that we may speak for them before the great and the small, before governments and institutions, and before all your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When I give these talks, I think some people come wanting to hear, expecting to hear technical aspects about sidewalk counseling, or as I sometimes prefer to term it, sidewalk advocacy. Technical aspects, where do I stand, what do I say, what about big signs, what about little signs, what about tackling people, and what about not tackling people, and that sort of thing. That's good. These are good questions to ask, and we will get into those in the third part of the presentation. But it's essential, it's essential, it's essential, it's essential. Before we get into any of the technical aspects, to understand quite simply why we do what we do. I have a lousy record for recruiting sidewalk counselors. Lousy record. Maybe I scare people off, I don't know. But it's essential to lay out the the basics and the truth of what we're doing because if you don't, you end up with often people who are there for the wrong reasons and often people who simply don't last. And one of the number one things that I can say is that consistency, sheer bulldog consistency, is absolutely essential when you go onto the sidewalk as a sidewalk counselor, as a sidewalk advocate. Consistency. It's not something that one does, you know, I've got a week off, okay. Well, okay, you can do it if you have a week off. 
you can go out here and there. But the fruit is going to come, the full fruit is going to come when there is that perseverance, when those bleak, bitter days are tasted, when they're kind of made part of your whole experience. You have to go through the whole experience. And there are many, many dark days. And you must accept them. And you must kind of, in a way, embrace them. And when you do that, and you continue to go, and you continue to go, and you continue to go, then you begin to see fruit in very, very unexpected ways. I'm going to begin with a reference to our friend over there. We are the Guadalupe Partners. And in 1531, as you know the story, that image began to bring in droves of converts. If any of you have studied history, I think there's a connection that needs to be made, a connection that I don't know that anyone's ever made it. But 1517, there is one man, a disgruntled Augustinian theologian, who's tacking up his little notices on the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg. And the same year, that's when Cortez is landing in Mexico. And we lose so many in Europe. But people forget, they forget to look on the other side of the ocean, where so many were gained. And that image is said to be the reason for those conversions, thousands, ten thousands of conversions. And you look at the image and you think, why? Now, artistically, is that an El Greco? Is it a um, Caravaggio? Well, no, not artistically, not in the technical sense. What is it? It's a picture drawing. It was a message to the Indian people. It was a message of life. And the image expresses life in many, many different ways. And I don't think that the conversions can be explained by saying, well, the Indians recognize this simply as a miraculous portrait, and knowing that this was a miraculous portrait, they then converted. I think when they looked at the image, they read what was there. It wasn't just the fact that it was miraculous. They read the signs on the image. Now, in 1531, what was the situation? Again, most of you already know the story. The situation was that the, uh, the Spaniards have completed their conquest. We now have Spanish governors who are ruling where the Aztecs used to rule. The um, temples have been brought down. Temples where the Indian people believed the sun god had to be fed, fed with the blood of the sacrifice. So... In order to renew time, this is what the Indians believe, in order to renew time, the sun must be fed, must be continually fed and refed and refed. And time, they believed, had to be renewed. And they had their sacred ritual fires and the sacrifices and, and all of that. All of that for the sake of keeping the clock turning round and round and round. So all that is torn down. And the Spanish governors gave them not much more to believe in. The Franciscan friars tried. They did their best. But the Indian people were hearing one thing from the Franciscan friars. They were seeing another in, in, the, uh, in the Spanish governors. And one plus one was not equaling two for them. And then this image appeared. And this image, it is a direct response to the whole belief in the sun god and in the necessity of renewing time and the, and the necessity of feeding the energy system, so to speak. And the Indian people were very despondent because they had no hope. Where's life going to come from? 
Okay, so the temples have been torn down. Now, where are we going to find life? We used to find life in the sacrifices. We used to find life in the rituals. Now, where is life going to come from? They saw in that image what they lacked. They saw the promise of life. And the image says, I believe, the image says that life is not this process, this continuing flow, this continuing flow, this continuous energy system. Life is relationship. Relationship with whom? It's kind of a Gothic cathedral we see there. Gothic cathedral in the shape of the woman who points up, who is obviously by her pose, she is in relationship with God. And from that relationship comes life. And the Indians all knew that she was a pregnant woman. That was very obvious to them. And all the flowers, these were all recognizable symbols for them, symbols of life. So they said, aha, there is the promise of life. Again, I'm stressing, not life as an energy source, not life as a continuous flow, a continuous flow as a continuous flow, but life as a relationship. And from the relationship, birth. Very interesting. What's this got to do with anything? It has a lot to do with sidewalk advocacy because I believe the one reason I'm such a failure in recruiting people for sidewalk advocacy, sidewalk counseling, is because I know, I know for sure that our society, our age, our world, essentially agrees with the Aztecs, that life is movement, it's energy. And in order to have life, you've got to keep the movement. You've got to renew the cycle. Now, for the Aztecs, they renewed the cycle by offering sacrifice. We renew the cycle by going out and renewing the lease on our Hummer. We have to have this constant flow of the new in our lives. So we're, as a society, always changing, changing homes, changing jobs, changing cities, changing states, changing countries. And especially when the modern man gets to be my age, sometimes he goes kind of crazy because he gets into this situation where everything seems to be more or less settled. Okay, I'm stuck with this woman and I'm stuck with these kids and I'm stuck with this job. And there's that frustration because the modern man believes, again, that life is movement, life is change, and you got to keep the cycle going. So the modern man gets to that position in life. All right, what am I going to do? How am I going to keep the cycle going? How do I change? And that's when the modern man often goes crazy, crazy in ways that we, we know about and Maybe just buying the Harley-Davidson and going out on the road, if he gets by with that, he'd be pretty lucky. Sometimes he'll pick up a girlfriend or whatever. We are all affected by this view of life, a view of life which I am convinced is out there. I am convinced that we have essentially returned to the pagan view of history, the pagan view of life. That time has to be continually renewed, and we don't have life unless we're moving and moving and moving. And if that is not the modern view of life, then explain to me why we are doing what we are doing. Why are we taking our aged and putting them off in corners where nobody can see them? Because they disturb the flow. Why do we believe that the unborn can be just erased? Because they don't move. They don't contribute. They are not contributing members of society, quote, unquote. Anyone who is essentially still, anyone whose really only gift to us is the gift of their being, not of their doing, but the gift of their being. Anyone like that is one who is threatened because they don't move and they don't keep up. And when you don't move and you don't keep up, you're pushed off the road. Now, 
as sidewalk counselors or, again, sidewalk advocates. There are going to come times in which you're going to feel absolutely frustrated because we are all affected. We all want numbers. We all want statistics. So I'm waking up on a Saturday morning. I am getting in my car. I'm going down to the clinic to be the hero. I'm going to save a baby this morning. All right, so you go down and you have a miserable morning. You are told off in 25 creative ways by both clients going into the clinic or by those simply passing by. The other two people who said they were going to meet you there, who were going to come out and be heroes too, never showed up. So you were there for two or three hours by yourself. No one listened. People told you off. No one was there with you. No one saw what a hero you were going out to be. You go home and you sit down and sip your coffee. And that's when you start to hear the voices. Isn't there something more effective that you can do? And that's going to be the key word. And it's going to play with you. Can't you be more effective? Can't you be more effective? And you might survive this kind of thing for the first couple of weeks, but for the first couple of months, it may get to be too much. Can't you be doing something more effective? Can't you be doing something more effective? Let's say that this is the case. Let's say that every day that you go out is a dark day, is a bleak day. I'm going to maintain that there is nothing that you can do that is more, quote, effective. We're talking about life. Again, what is this thing, this thing we call life? Pro-life, there it is, right on the t-shirt. What does it mean, pro-life? I am pro-heartbeat, I am pro-brainwave, I am pro-movement, I am pro-energy. Pro-what, this thing called life? Now, we remember the Gospels, we remember how Christ, in some ways, was, quote, effective, Saw a lame man, he would heal the lame man. The lame man would get up and become a productive member of society again. Saw a blind man, he would heal the blind man. The blind man would get up and become a productive member of society. And then we got the guy named Lazarus. Lord, your friend Lazarus is dying. All right, I'll be there. Don't rush me. So he shows up three days late. Well, thanks for showing up, but by now he's smelling. You're kind of late. And then there's that brief line, Jesus wept. And everybody says, oh, Jesus wept because of his compassion for poor Lazarus. You know, looking at the text, I don't think that's it at all. I think he's wept because of the lack of faith that he found around him. I don't think he had any reason to weep for Lazarus. Jesus knows what's up, literally. I'm just pointing out a new way of, you know, pro-life. Okay, he did heal. He did heal biological functions. But life to him was more than that. And these healings were just signs of a greater life. A greater life that, again, is expressed there in the image. The source of the life carried in the womb of that woman is quite simply her relationship with God, as evidenced, manifested by her position of submission. So life is found in that relationship. And members of the body of Christ, the church, are baptized into that life. And members of the body of Christ, the church, live in that life. And when you go out, you have to go out as a member of the body of Christ. And Paul says, he has a very intriguing sentence. I make up in my own body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Paul had a way of sneaking these things in. And they just kind of 
I make up in my own body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. How can anything be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, obviously, Christ is God. Nothing can be lacking. But Christ continued his bodily presence in the church. And the church now lives the life of Christ. And in living the life of Christ, that is where we find the essence of all life. So we go out on the sidewalk and we experience a thousand different humiliations, ten thousand different heartaches, and we accept it. Why? Because we love that child. And when you stand there on the sidewalk and you feel like you're failing, you feel like you're not being effective. You remind yourself, okay, so your buddies didn't show up. You were there by yourself for three hours. I am the only person on this earth who has loved that child. And if you can say that, and your presence itself says that, then you have added something to the world which the world did not have. I am the only person who loves that child. You have added something which the world did not have. You've added a moment of grace. You've added an act of grace which lifts the entire mystical body of Christ. I'm completely convinced of this. I'm completely convinced that the person with the Christ mind has to completely reorder his life of action, reorder his way of thinking, reorder his thoughts about what is effective and what is not effective. You know, Mother Teresa said it most simply. We don't want your effectiveness. We simply want your faith. And that is, first and foremost, what is required of the sidewalk advocate. Alicia and I and and Nate and Steve and Ann, we all have experienced these dark times. But in that persistency, then something happens, something happens, which completely takes you by surprise and you find life. Now, we've experienced time after time, and Alicia's going to talk about this more than I will. But you find life from avenues you never, ever expected. You went to the sidewall counseling workshop, and this guy told you, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and then this is going to happen. So you do this, and then this, and nothing happens, but then something completely different, completely surprising happened. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're going to be taken by surprise. We've experienced it. And we've looked at each other completely dumbfounded. Where did that come from? We have no idea where it came from. Just one example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. When we were still down on Packard and Platt, and African-American couple came in, you know, we talked to them at the car, talked to them down the sidewalk. They went to the clinic. They came out. They got in their car, and they left. Oh, good. You know, a couple left. 45 minutes at least passed. We're pacing the sidewalk, getting ready to leave. The couple that I had talked to 45 minutes early, that had gotten to their car and left, they come out the front door again. They had left. They had simply pulled around the block. They had gone into the alley. They would parked in the back of the abortion clinic. They went in through the back way. Why? To avoid us. So they were inside the clinic, again, about 45 minutes, and I guess just kept playing things over in their minds. And then finally, they came out. And I I was just completely astounded. I thought, you had left, and here you are. And the guy said, well, he explained that he had gone around back and went in the back door. But their car was still in the back, but they came out to the front door. 
and he came out the front door expressly to speak to us and to thank us. It was the most amazing thing. And it was so rich. I was always nervous when I had no contact with a couple who had left. Because too many times I'd been burned. You know, the couple gets in the car, a couple leaves, and you think, oh, jump up and down, dance. Too many times I'd seen them come back. The clinic personnel got good with the cell phone. So-and-so's ten minutes late for the appointment, get him on the cell phone. Several times, I won't say many, but several times. We had turned a couple away, clinic personnel, we get them on the cell phone. All of those people, they're just, they're rabid, those pro-light people. It's all lies. Come on back. We'll take care of you. And they would come on back. What a heartache. And so when that couple did leave, okay, good, but still an unsettled feeling. But when they came out the front door in order to seek us out and say, thank you, that's when you know something has changed. Alicia Wong is my partner now for a couple of years. She's a mom at the school at which I teach. And one day I said, let's team up. And we shook hands there in front of the chapel at Spiritus Santus and It's been trouble ever since. I don't think either of us expected that it would be two years now that we've been doing this. And Alicia has been going out at least twice a week. And she's very good. Obviously, she is fluent in Spanish, which has been a life-saving device many, many times. But she has something that I don't have. She has a charism that I don't have. And I can do the tactical stuff when I'm out at the clinic, but... She's the one who goes to the heart, and I think you will see that. Mr. Miller always asks me to do the second part of this session, but when I sit there and I listen to him, I get motivated to do sidewalk counseling all over again. (laughs) I think that I have always been pro-life. I think of myself growing up, you know, when I was in high school and I started to learn of all of these problems, even though I was in a country where abortion is illegal. I was still life and um, in college I did everything, talks and walks and all kinds of stuff that a pro-life person would do. But I have never, ever, ever in my life been to an abortion clinic. And I was very afraid of doing that. And I could say now that even thinking about it was, if you have children, you know, you have to find a babysitter, you have to put time for it, so many, many things that people can think of in order to make it to an abortion clinic to do sidewalk counseling. It takes several different things, you know, but for me, it was very, very difficult to go to an abortion clinic. I was very afraid. So the first time I went to the abortion clinic is because of Mr. Miller, and he took the 7th and 8th graders to the abortion clinic to pray the rosary and I thought, okay, well, that sounds pretty safe to me. You know, I can go to the washing clinic when these kids outside praying, and it would be fine. Of course, I never expected that I was ever going to do sidewalk counseling. You know, I was just on the side praying with the kids as well. And I spend a lot of time in the side praying many, many times. I went to the washing clinic with Mr. Miller. I would only be on the side praying. I say only because... That's all I did, but it is very, very, very important to have somebody praying at the abortion clinic. But while I was standing there praying for these babies, I saw Mr. Miller approaching these families, these couples, sometimes mother and daughter or father and daughter, or just couples that came to the abortion clinic to kill their children. And I saw how he approached them and how he little by little gave them hope or how in many occasions he was just simply able 
to help these people come back to reality. But most important, I saw how always he gave love to those babies. Every single time. And looking at this and standing on the side, I comprehended, I grasped how important it was to just stand there for those babies. To give love to those babies. If it was the only thing that could have been done for that baby. That was the most important thing. To be there for that baby. And so I started to realize that when the summer was over and Mr. Miller was going to go back to school, there was nobody else that was going to stand there. And somebody had to do that. And it was hard to make a decision. And it is hard to make the decision, like he said, to be consistent. Because it takes sacrifice and it takes effort. But once you understand what it means to be there, what it does, what your presence does at that place, by those doors, then it is more difficult not to be there. It's incredibly difficult not to be there, no matter what else is happening in your life. So I started sidewalk counseling with Mr. Miller, and then I would do it on the Fridays that the clinic was still open and Mr. Miller was teaching. So I think I could give you a couple of examples, like Mr. Miller said, to tell you, you know, how important and how wonderful it is to be there. And I would like to share one of the most recent ones. It was probably just a couple of weekends ago. I had been there on Friday, and it had been one of those horrible weeks, one of those weeks that everything seems so dark, and you can't see possible that this is happening in this life, you know that people actually come and kill their children that way, and that people come and they seem that they have no heart at all, and they don't see any hope, and there's no light in their eyes, and you stand there and you beg for the life of these children, and you beg for them to listen to you, and you tell them that God loves them, and nothing happens. And you're standing there, and just the whole world is dark. And I remember that Friday being so, so depressed, and I felt empty and lonely. I don't know. It was horrible. I was crying (laughs) at the abortion clinic that Friday. I thought, oh, Lord, please just have mercy. (laughs) Have mercy on us, all of us. And then the next Saturday, we get up again, you know, early, and I leave my kids at home, and then we drive all the way to the abortion clinic, and we see this woman in the sidewalk just walking, and apparently she had taken a bus to the abortion clinic, and She wasn't in the car, because usually we get them when they are parked, waiting for the abortion clinic to be open, and she was just walking. So we thought, okay, we have a good chance to speak to this woman, because she will be waiting for the abortion clinic to be open, and she has no car. So we jumped out of the car, and Mr. Miller went to her immediately and started talking to her. And she seemed receptive, very receptive to him. So she would walk up and down, and Mr. Miller would walk with her, and she would pause and talk to him, and... We had all these other cars parking at the same time, and we tried to go to these other cars and give them information. And still, Mr. Miller said, let's try to focus on this woman. You know, she's being receptive. And little by little, Mr. Miller helped this woman one more time to find reality, to come down to earth and see what it meant to be human. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be a mother? What does it mean to be here? You know, what does it mean that we are talking right now? You know, what does it mean to be friends with somebody? It was such an incredible conversation just to hear him talk to this person and make this person see life. Just simple. Just what it means to be alive. So I would come back, back and forth and would listen to the conversation of Anon. 
Then it was time that the doors were open and everybody went in, including this woman. So many times we have seen how they go in and they still kill their children, you know. But after I heard everything that she heard, I thought, it's impossible that she kills her baby now. I mean, there's no way, you know, after what they have discussed. In her mind, there must be such an incredible clash right now, crash between the idea of killing that child and before she thought she was going to do it was killing just a blob of cells right now. That idea is gone completely from her mind. So she went in, she came out to smoke, she went back in again, and at the end she came back and she said that, of course, she couldn't kill her baby. So Mr. Miller sent me to take her back home, and she's like, okay, just take her, give her a ride. I'm like, okay, you know. And I got in the car, and I thought, okay, he wants me to do something, (laughs) because otherwise he would have not sent me home with this woman like this. And I'm nervous because I'm thinking, okay, what? (laughs) What do I do? So I'm praying, and I think, God, just guide me, because I have a mission, (laughs) and I don't know how to do this. But I realized, well, this woman is going home to a man that sent her on a bus to have an abortion. And she's coming back with a baby. And it's obviously not a good scenario for that guy, which has not hurt Mr. Miller. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, what are you doing? So I started just talking to her and figuring out why was she there, you know? What happened? She had five other kids, which we found out on the sidewalk. And so she starts saying, well, we got our car stolen. We have five other kids. There's too much stress for us. And all of a sudden you start realizing, you know, there's this big, wall that they have made and it's financial issue or the stress that all of a sudden everything looked impossible one more kid is not possible that's it you know and just a few days ago somebody donated a car for the Guadalupe partner so that we could give it to somebody in need so I said to her well you know what you know we can help you Mr. Miller told her that there were 200 people behind her if she decided to keep her baby that she was going to get all kinds of help and she couldn't believe it until she realized that she was going to get a car donated and wow it is true there is people behind us and there's no way that all of those little things that all of us we put together and make a wall are more important than the life of a child there's absolutely no way and that's what she saw at that moment you know it was so important for her to realize that that was so silly you know to kill a baby for everything else that could be happening in her life and thank god she saw that that day And that baby is alive. And when we gave her the car three days later, she said to me that it was evident that God was present. That's the message that she received. God is present and I can see God. So that was one of the beautiful stories because that way you can see that you or we were instruments of God. Just that, instruments of God. We were just in the middle when this happened. And I can tell you so many stories like this that are beautiful and you can feel how much God is actually really present in every single one of them. And I can also tell you some stories where they are not as happy as this, but this one in particular just last week. And it was a Catholic couple and they came to the abortion clinic and he was wearing an image of Our Lady Guadalupe, probably bigger than this one, on a medal. And it was such a horrible thing to see because you know that that person knows God and that person has seen the image and has probably heard the message of life and hope and and that person is still at the abortion clinic thinking that the only solution is to kill that child. And one thing that I know is that we were standing there that day and we loved God and we had our image of Our Lady with us. 
And we looked at that couple as they were going into the abortion clinic and as they came out thinking about abortion or not. And that that man who was wearing the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, that man killed that baby that day. He brought that baby to be killed to the abortion clinic that day, and that baby died. But that baby died as a human being because we were there. That's the only reason why that baby died as a human being. And that baby died loved because we were there. No other reason. Just because we were there, that baby died loved, and that baby died with dignity. Just because we were there that day. We didn't save that life, but that baby died in a different way, just because we were there. And there are the cases where you think that there's no hope anymore, you know, that you yourself gave up on yourself. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know how to say that, but you go and you give the information and you talk to the people and nothing happens. And there was this guy that came and brought his girlfriend and the girlfriend went in and he stayed in the car. He wasn't going to go past the door. You know, he's just there, I don't know, smoking, thinking, listening to music, talking on the phone. And I, I thought he actually took a little flyer that we give them and he threw it out the window. He had their windows rolled up and he was on the phone most of the time. And I thought, well, it looks hopeless. It really does. You know, he didn't care about information. He doesn't even care about her because she's inside and he's outside listening to music while the baby's being killed. But I still said, for some reason, I had this thing about going to his car and talking to him. And I went and I said, so what? Are you just going to sit there? And he said, yeah. And I said, how can you do that? You know, there's no way that you're going to just sit here while that baby is being killed inside. And he's like, well, it's not even my baby. And I said, well, yeah, everybody tells us the same thing. Everybody has an excuse. This is not my baby or this is just a friend, whatever. And he said, well, not really. I have a child with that lady, but this one is not mine. This is true. I'm telling you the truth. So I'm just here because the guy that the father couldn't really bring her in. So she asked me for a favor. I mean, that's why I'm not even in, inside. And I said, and you're going to let the mother of your child go through an abortion and she's going to have post-abortion stress syndrome and she's going to be depressed and she's going to have suicidal thoughts. You're going to let the mother of your child go through that? Do you want that woman to be the mother of the child that you have right now? Just listen to what you're saying. to me. You're like... You don't have anything to do. Yes, you have something to do with that woman. She is the mother of your child, and you can't let that happen to her. So he looked at me. He said, yeah. And I said, you have what it takes to go get her out of that place and help that woman be the best mother for the child that you have right now. He actually got out of the car and went in and got her out. Thank God. But those things, when you are standing there, and when those things happen, and even when the baby dies, when all of those things happen, one by one in separate instances, those are more important. And the strength of that has to pull you more than, I have to get up at 6 o'clock or at 4 o'clock or at 5 a.m. to make it all the way to the abortion clinic. Or that it is freezing outside and I have to wear three coats or two hats just to be standing outside. Or that I have to leave my kids for six hours, you know, home or whatever, you know, two, three, four hours, whatever it takes. It's a sacrifice, but it is worth it. It is worth it. You have to see that so that you can be consistent. And if no other baby is ever saved that way, if no other baby is ever saved at the abortion clinic from now on, for the fact that when you stand there, 
that baby turns from a pregnancy test or a blob of cells into a human. I imagine the babies when they die, I imagine them looking down and knowing somebody wanted me, somebody did want me, and somebody loved me. When that happens, when you can think about that, just that, then you can be there every single time for the rest of your life. Thank you. We just heard Edmund Miller and Alicia Wong with the first part of our training as sidewalk counselors on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Following our break, Edmund Miller will be back with some more training and our question and answer session. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Edmund Miller now continues our training, and in a few minutes we'll start taking our questions. Someone commented not too long ago that Mrs. Wong should stay home and bake cookies on Saturday mornings. It wasn't I who said that. To get into the uh, technical aspects now, first thing to remember, okay, so you're out there and things aren't going well. Imagine that the place on which you are standing, imagine that it's empty. Imagine that nobody's there. It will help you to stay there, point number one. Point number two, the point of consistency. Mrs. Wong makes real sacrifices to get out twice a week. And there are some who have the kind of suburban mindset that she should be home baking cookies. But again, if this is going to be an issue for any of you, well, I've got kids at home. But what is going to teach your children? What is going to be the most effective teacher of your children if you have children? So you're gone for a couple hours on Friday morning, you're gone for a couple hours on Saturday morning, and you are teaching your children in the most effective way possible. Because little Johnny or little David is thinking, my mom didn't go out to Kroger's this morning. She's not baking cookies. She's standing on a sidewalk, pleading for the lives of babies. Little Johnny is going to grow up with that, with that impression so deeply embedded. So again, for any of you who are parents, and for whom this might be an issue, the time away from home, which is a real issue, obviously. But consider it from that point of view. Consider how you are teaching your child by your absence, because the child knows where you are. The child knows. The third thing to consider in uh, sidewalk counseling is just sheer geography. What kind of clinic is it? Where is it? What are the uh, surroundings? The sidewalk counselor has to know the surroundings, has to be familiar of where people enter, what's public, what's not public. The setup is going to be different for every clinic you go to. So you can't give one kind of canvas application of sidewalk counselors should be posted here and here or should do this and this. There is no canvas application because you have to consider where you are. At Packard and Platt, a strip mall, okay, so you got a sidewalk, public access, a large parking lot, and you have many different businesses to either side of you. You got your pet grooming place, you got your little Caesars, you got your fantasy attic costume place, all there on Packard and Platt. Now, when you have a large area from which women are approaching, then obviously the sidewalk counselors need to be spread out. And this is generally a good rule no matter where you are. The sidewalk counselors, you know, after a half hour, after an hour, they're going to want to go talk to each other just for some human contact. But it's a human response which has to be resisted. And you must remain separate 
and you must remain distant from each other in most cases because you don't know quite where the woman is going to come from or the man, whoever's leading the charge. And you certainly do not want to stand right next to the door. Never stand right next to the door because you're dealing with seconds. And the farther you are able to approach someone from the door, the more time you have. Simple as that. And to be right there next to the door and, oh man, would you take this? The woman is not even going to see you because she is so engrossed and so focused on one thing that she will be just a speck in the corner of her eye and she will be in. At Packard and Platt, again, there was a parking lot. We were in a storefront clinic. Let's say this is the door. We've got, I don't know, maybe about five feet of sidewalk and then a strip mall kind of parking lot. So usually I was down there. Alicia was down there. Nate, Steve, a group of prayer persons, you know, a few feet away from the door, but centrally located. So if I am on that end, then I am obviously watching all the traffic on this end. And as someone approaches in the car, I don't stand there and wait. I go to the car, especially if you're in wintertime. A lot of people are going to just sit there with the engine idling, having a little chat before they go in. You approach the car, and you, you act like you own the place. Let's say Steve is sitting in the car there. I don't carry this grim face, oh, don't do it. I don't have this look of panic on my face at all. I just kind of saunter up. Hi, good morning. Act like you own the place. Do not look panicky. Because if they see you coming like that, again, the, the wall is going to shut down. If you act like you own the place, they'll think, oh, this is someone with a clinic. Wants to give me, uh, I don't know, maybe a parking voucher or something. Who knows? So the person, by your manner, thinks you kind of belong here. The person rolls down the window. Hey, while you're sitting there in the car, could you just look this over? I know it's cold out. While you're warm, look this over. This pamphlet was written by women who have had abortions, women exploited by abortion. Or, if you're using what people call the Chicago technique, there's a very interesting information here about the the abortionist here, the lawsuits. Da, 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 da. I'll go into that in a few minutes. But the point right now is act like you own the place. Saunter around. Focus is essential. And developing an, an eyesight, so to speak, is essential. What does that mean? It means, in a way, you have to conserve energy. And by conserve energy, I mean avoiding desperation techniques of sidewalk counseling. So again, going back to Packard and Platt with the strip mall situation. Obviously, people going into many different businesses. Now, the desperation sidewalk counseling is running up to everybody. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. Please don't get my dog bathed. Please don't do what? Develop an eye for sidewalk counseling. Know who's coming to the clinic. And you don't want to get to, to the point where you're taking unnecessary risks. But there are times in which, with just a quick look over, you can tell who's going to the clinic and who's not. If somebody pulls into the parking lot and is chomping on a Big Mac, not likely going into the clinic. Not supposed to eat for a surgical procedure. Dress tells you a lot. Uh, Just expression tells you a lot. Get to know the people around you. A single woman just pulled into the parking lot. Okay, oh, that person works over here in this next business. So conserve energy. You're not going to go running after that car because you know that car and you know that person. And just being there and experience will help you with that. Also, if somebody's been there longer than you have, checking in with them. Okay, now what faces are going to be 
familiar here? What cars are going to be familiar here? So who do I not have to worry about? Research your clinic as much as possible. Research in, in two different directions. Going back to my quick reference to the lawsuits, this is a very effective means of dissuading women, not permanently, but at least temporarily. When we began sidewall counseling at Dearborn, we went into the Wayne County Courthouse, spent a couple of days in doing this, in researching lawsuits filed against Joan An Nam, the abortionist at the American Family Planning Clinic in Dearborn on Schaefer Highway. The research done on Robert Alexander is very, very thorough. It is all right there. Again, this is called the Chicago method. Who knows why? To speak frankly, most women going into the clinic, their first thoughts are not going to be for their child, quite simply because the child isn't real to them. So how do you make an appeal for the life of the child when the child is not real? Well, you can make an appeal to the life of the woman herself. And that's where these lawsuits come in very, very handy. I'm not saying this is the way you want to go, absolutely. It will certainly make a woman hesitate, stall, or turn away for that day or for that week. So she doesn't want to go to this abortionist because he looks like a dirty, rotten character. Fine. So you've gained time for the baby. This is invaluable. Again, for very hard and gritty reasons. The longer the woman waits, the more expensive the abortion becomes. Sorry to put it in those ways, but often that's just the way they're thinking. The more expensive it becomes. So the longer delay you can create, the better chance the baby's going to have. A few months ago, a woman referred to us. We took her to pregnancy aid in Gross Point. She had her ultrasound, and she came out of the ultrasound. We, we were expecting to see someone jubilant. She was crushed. She was devastated. Yes, she had seen the child. The um, sonographer estimated the child was between 23 and 25 weeks old. And the woman got into the van after the ultrasound procedure and just really weeping. Now I don't have any choice. In other words, the baby's simply too old. And the abortion is just too doggone expensive. She had no choice. That was not a good way to start with that woman, but we've been with it. Persistency. Almost every week we're in there to see this woman. And she's become a different woman, I would have to say. She's due July 4th, and that's going to be neat. That's going to be a, the rare privilege of a sidewalk counselor to actually go to the hospital and see the child. I expect this to be a very large child <laughs> because she's very large at this moment, almost to the point where she can't walk. But she's happy. She's happy. We need time. The lawsuits give us time. Always, always, always try to get a phone number. Try to get an address. We've got plenty of help. There are hundreds of people. I do mean that. I'm not just throwing out a number, but from the SSA schools that I'm connected with, you know, the, the Christ, the King, you, you can easily come up with hundreds of people who would be willing to help in one way or another. We have hundreds of people who are willing to help. Can I get your number? I'd just like to call you, check up on you. Try to get a number. It's priceless. You know, 50% of the time they're going to give you a bogus number. Okay, you tried. Sometimes it'll be legitimate. And then there's always the question, what do I say to this? What do I say to that? First of all, you're already there, which has said three-quarters of what you have to say. They know why you're there. What do I say to this? What do I say to that? Don't let yourself be sidetracked. You know, in logic class, we call this the straw man. Oh, you pro-lifers, why aren't you protesting the war? Why aren't you 
protesting the persecution of chickens. Whatever. Well, I believe very greatly in the right to life of chickens. I, don't do it. Don't get off on this tangent. Stay focused. They're going to try to throw you off. You pro-lifers. You blah, blah, blah. Well, where were you when blah, 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 blah. Sir, that's not why I'm here, and you know it. Now let's get back to the issue. I'll just do that for now. If you've been considering sidewalk housing, is there any question you would like some suggestions with? Just go ahead and, and shoot it out now. Do you have a few suggestions on what you open with, depending on the situation or how you approach them, but what are some good opening lines? Okay, thank you. Now you jog my memory, and that's what I was going to bring up. What you open with depends on who's in charge. And again, when I talked about developing a kind of an eyesight for sidewalk counseling, you have to be able to identify who's in charge. Often we have these sit-in-the-car men, and the woman is, she's the one who wants this. She's the one who made the appointment. She's the one who's going to follow through. Sometimes you get, like the guy last week, he killed that child. What at least he didn't tell you is that his girlfriend actually did leave at one point. He got in the car with her, Mr. Catholic, the guy wearing the medal, and talked her back into the clinic. He was in charge. So identify who's in charge. If it's a guy, sometimes I, I will play with their masculine egos. There was a um, fellow a couple of weeks, well, three weeks ago, who ran the security business. How did I know that? It was very obvious. He was, had it on the side of his big 4x4 truck. He was wearing this uniform. So he's walking through the parking lot, and I meet him at the end of the parking lot. Sir, I'm really sorry that your business is doing so poorly. What do you mean? My business is doing well. Got more accounts than I can handle. Well, I just assume that because you had brought your, your wife here that you weren't able to afford or couldn't, for some reason, take care of the child. That just nicked him because he's this big, muscular guy. So if you got this big, muscular guy, Mr. Security, who's, you know, he's on the cell phone half the time, and prick the masculine ego. Sir, this child who weighs a few ounces, is it really too much for you to handle at this point? So that's one possibility. First, appeal to the woman. First, appeal to the woman. What kind of care do you think you're going to get at a place like this? I mean, that's one of the ways I opened up with um, Danica a couple of weeks ago. We're standing out in front of this block building in the flower beds, quote-unquote, in front of the building. There are black rocks with thistles growing out. The paint is chipping. There are whiskey bottles, empty whiskey bottles, in the planters outside the front door. And I said, look, look where we're standing. Black rocks, weeds, and whiskey bottles. Is this what you want for yourself? There's something that these, these women want. They want affirmation. They desperately want affirmation. Give it. Affirm them. Affirm their own dignity. Mrs. Wong, last week with this Catholic fellow, and she went to the woman. She bypassed him. She went to the woman and she said, this man is using you, abusing you. So most commonly, I will open up with a reference to the lawsuits, just bringing up the topic of what kind of care do you want? Is this the kind of care that you want? And then I'm sometimes very explicit about going through the material with them. If you turn it over, look, on the back there's this phone number. 734-262-4555. You call that number, they'll set you up at a place where you can get dependable care. 
care, which has respect for you. Of course, that's Alicia's number. <laughs> Phone call. Any other? Yeah, what would you say um, if a couple approached and you were worried about was an abusive relationship and if she were to turn around and go back, actually worried about for her life and her child, what would you do in that kind of situation? In that kind of situation, obviously, they're not going to give you a phone number. Give them a phone number. Make sure she has a phone number. And don't be shy about giving out your phone number. If that's what it takes, do it. So if you can kind of get around him, just go to her and sato voce. And three-quarters of the time, going low in terms of volume undercuts everything else, and, and we'll get to the ear. It's not far-fetched if you have evidence, something in the way that you have seen in his treatment of her, to go ahead and call the police. Are they going to do anything? Probably not. Probably not. But tell them what you saw and insist that they go in and check the records, that they go in and take a name. And um, this is different situations, but in seeing young ladies going in who have appeared to be minors, Steve several times has called the police in those situations. I have a question about when women come out of the abortion clinic. What do you do then? How do you talk to them? Do you talk to them? Do you put stuff on their car? Post-abortion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not going to hear most of what you say because they're in pain and they're in a mental devastation. Again, you know, the same kind of technique, just kind of go up quietly, just try to slip something into her hand. That's the most you can do. And, and you know what the materials are for that purpose, but do try. We've had a couple of times when people have come out and did not think they had been treated well. And I'm wondering about sometimes those people might be willing to make complaints, you know, having materials that you could give them or a phone number or some a website. What do you think about that? trying to make it easy for them to make a complaint against the doctor if they you know, were shocked by the condition of the clinic or the treatment that they got from the doctor or something like that. The wind blows where it wills is the scriptural phrase. You never know where the act of grace is going to be effective. Do everything that you can in those situations. Try to slip a 1-800 number into her hand or try to slip some kind of post-abortion healing pamphlet into her hand. You never know what's going to happen. We've had post-abortion women who have referred abortion-minded women to us. You wouldn't think it would ever happen. Because this woman, initially, she was a turn away, and then she went ahead and had the abortion. You'd think, well, this person is embittered against us. She's blackened her, her mind against us. And gives us this name of this 15-year-old girl who's pregnant and a sophomore in high school, and you just never know. Always try. You'll find that the story never never ends when you think it's going to end. We talk, we have been talking to women that we turned away from abortion 15, 20 years ago, still in contact with them. Hey, I have a question uh, more from the counselor's side. Um, it's a personal question here. How, what instances do you foresee, especially for somebody who probably doesn't have all the legal um, protections that everybody else has. I'm an immigrant. And most of the time, I know we've discussed this and said, well, I don't know, you know, if it's really prudent for me to be out there even though I would like to. 
just because of potential incidents that might become a, a who knows, you know, if you get costed or if you had dead infringement, whatever it is that, you know, that puts you in jeopardy. How would you go about preparing for, say, somebody like me preparing to be there and knowing what protections and all the good stuff that I have legally to be out there? You have all the legal protections that anybody else has. Now, perhaps you're concerned, well, what do I do if somebody makes a complaint against me? I'm here as an immigrant. and Legally, you know, I've been doing this almost as long as Barb has, about 18 years, and I've never suffered any significant legal consequences at all. Have the police ever been called? Yes, the police have been called. What happens? Guy gets out of his car. Gotta lift up his pants. They always lift up their pants from the guy. <laughs> oh, buddy, you know you're not supposed to be on the sidewalk there, and you can't block the entrance, and you haven't been harassing anybody, have you? I don't know. That look on your face. You look guilty to me. It's the same spiel. Same stuff. Yes, sir. No, I haven't been on I sidewalk. What, what sidewalk? Parking lot. The police have probably been called to that clinic 15, 20 times before. They're tired of it. They know that most of the calls they're going to get are nonsense. They know that. So they're just going to get out of the car. They're going to give the usual spiel about staying off the parking lot and not locking the door and not harassing anybody. I can guarantee you. Those are the three points. And they'll get in their car and they'll go. And that's going to be it. I've never suffered any serious legal consequences from sidewalk counseling. Never. And I've done rescues. I've been through the court system, and I've been in many, many jails. But I plan to go to jail. You know. So how would you recommend that somebody prepares to go out there? What Other than just prayer, I mean, what are the other things that you'd recommend that uh, a sidewalk counselor really goes through before every time they go out? Like, Alicia, you've got quite a bit. What kind of things you do? I know you pray, and maybe some people do the rosary, some people do mass, but... Put yourself in a mental position to be prepared for whatever happens. If you haven't gone out to this particular clinic before, then talk to the other sidewalk counselors and learn from them everything they got to tell you. Prayer, absolutely. Saturday mornings, our ritual is we meet at 6 at Panera. We have coffee at Panera. It sounds very simple. It's very, very important. Just to meet beforehand, as early as you got to get up. i got to get up at 5 in order to get to Panera by 6. But just to sit there and drink coffee with those who are going out. Sometimes Will is there, Alicia's there, sometimes Donna Schmidt's there. Just that human moment among people who understand each other, immensely beneficial. From Panera, we go to Divine Child, and they have adoration there. We spend... 20 minutes in adoration, then we finally go to the clinic. So it's quite a trip on Saturday mornings, but every element of the trip is is important. And then afterwards, I told you to stay away from the other sidewalk counselors. Okay, so that's the rule. But afterwards, please take yourselves out to breakfast. (laughs) You need the human encouragement. You need that support. You need to do something normal. I'm driving down Ford Road in the mornings on the way to the clinic, and I'm passing these diners, and I'm passing these people out walking their dogs, and I'm thinking, oh, these people are doing normal stuff, and I'm going to the black hole. And I just want to desperately do something normal. But do that. 
And some people think it's not part of the sacrificial act to go out and have breakfast after you've been at the abortion mill. But you've you got to have that kind of encouragement. I wanted to know if you have people in another location praying for you or people there whose job it is just to pray while you're doing that. Yes, ma'am. At Packard and Platt location, there was always a prayer group, and that was their job. Sometimes two or three, sometimes four or five, sometimes larger. But as I said, they would be located kind of centrally, with the sidewall counselors off to either side. Again, in, in, the, in the realm of grace, impossible to say what the effectiveness was. It gave us, certainly, great encouragement to hear the prayers. It also gave us an opportunity, while waiting, while standing, in focus, to join in the prayers. Normally, the sidewalk counselor can't do both. The sidewalk counselor can't go over and join in the rosary because the sidewalk counselor is a sidewalk counselor. But when you can hear the snatches of the prayers and join in, it's enormous encouragement, enormous spiritual benefit. So yes, I'd say in any complete sidewalk counseling picture, there is a group of prayers there. It can be two, can be 50. It doesn't really matter. She's wondering, too, if you don't need to be present if you could just pray for us while you're not at the clinic. And on Fridays, I go with another mother to the abortion clinic where Mr. Miller is in school. And many times when I see situations that are very hard, but I think that only a miracle can happen and then it will be fine, then I call him and I ask him to get all the kids to pray. And I know that it makes a big difference. There was a, a lady that I spoke to her. I actually stood between the door and her. And I will tell you not to block the door, but I was desperate. And she was holding her baby, and she was definitely going into the abortion clinic. And I spoke to her maybe for 15 minutes. And I actually prayed over her. I grabbed her. I, you know, like I was holding her back. She is Hispanic. So I kind of took advantage of that. I knew she wasn't going to sue me. So I just... <laughs> <laughs> so I just really was trying to hold her back and she went in to the abortion clinic and I thought there's no way you know this woman has to come out of there she can't kill that baby it, it will destroy her you know I, I could see that so I called Mr. Miller and I said please get your kids to pray for this woman well I think it took exactly the time that it took Mr. Miller and the kids to pray that rosary she came out of the clinic, and she said no. And then I said, okay, is that all that you wanted? <laughs> all these kids to pray a rosary? But I think prayer was the key there for that baby to be alive today. It was and the hotline. The phone would ring in my classroom, and the students knew what was going on. I have a very odd classroom, I guess. But to be in this kind of artificial environment, the environment of the classroom, but at the same time to be tuned in to a harsh realism 30 miles away, the kids were always very, very responsive. And when the call came, they would say, well, what's going on? And okay, let's go to the chapel. Three-dimensional education, I guess. Just to comment on the prayer, I don't know if you're interested in prayer, but we need prayer warriors in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti right now for both Planned Parenthood and the uh, abortion clinic in Ypsilanti. Also, I had just one other question that hasn't been asked yet, but how do you know when abortions are being done, and how do you address that? How do you know what the abortion schedule is? Right, yes. Oh, you know the answer to this. Well, I'm asking it just, <laughs> just in case anybody's here wondering that question. You make a thoughtfully worded phone call, 
In other words, you try to make an appointment. You don't lie. And there are many ways you can do this without lying. What times do you have available for abortion appointments? It's not a lie, you're just asking a question. Then they might go into more specific questions. Well, when was the time of your last cycle and that sort of thing? And if you fear that the receptionist might get into those specific questions, then again, you have a pregnant woman call who can answer those questions truthfully. So again, there are ways of making these phone calls without lying, generally stated questions, and these are businesses. They want business. In most cases, they're going to give you the information. Now, our friend down in Ipsy is a different matter because most abortionists are on a schedule. The abortionists in in Milwaukee, where I was formerly, they were circuit riders, basically. They did several clinics, so they had to be in and out of Milwaukee on Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays, say, from so-and-so to so-and-so. So the, the abortion appointments were always in a block, and that's usually the way you're going to find it. Mr. Alexander down in Ipsy is basically willing to make appointments whenever he needs to make them on given days. So as we know, those of us who have been down at Ipsy, if it's a Wednesday or a Friday and somebody wants an abortion appointment at 8 o'clock at night, he'll probably give it. That's why the clinic in Ipsy is, is a tricky place to deal with. In one sense, Alexander is his own worst enemy. I mean, many women, after having initial conversation with sidewalk counselors, go in and they just look at the guy and they look at the place and that's enough. They're out. The hard part, though, is getting sidewalk counselors there quite simply at the right time because his appointments are so broadcast. So in order to cover the place, you're talking about scheduling sidewalk counselors over maybe a 10-hour period. So I think that's something we need to talk about. Generally, that's the way it's done. You call, you make an appointment. Now, another question that has been asked is, what about the guy who threatens to flatten your nose? What are you going to do about him? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. The Mr. In-Control type is going to go right up in your face, especially if you're shorter, like I am, and he's going to, to threaten you in all sorts of interesting ways. If something like this ever happens, my advice is to go low. I don't mean slug them below the no, I'm not talking about <laughs> Steve, get in my face. Be Mr. In Control. Okay, so we're standing like this, and he's bigger, he's thicker than I am, and he is well capable of doing everything that he threatens, and probably will, if given the opportunity to do so. Now, there's a fellow at the Dearborn Clinic who has been beaten up several times, three times that I know of. He's a good man, he's always there, but he's a preacher, and you can't do it. When I say he's a preacher, I mean he he has a script, and the script always has to come out, no matter what situation. He doesn't know how to change his presentation according to the person that he's dealing with. It's always just the same script. And not being able to change that script, he's been pushed out into traffic, he has been uh, pummeled. Two weeks ago he was he was a mess. The whole left side of his face was black and blue and large scabs. Again, this has never happened to me. The only thing that ever happened to me was this very large grandmother who came after me with an umbrella once. And even if she comes after you with an umbrella, you just take it and you, you keep going. So two weeks ago I was in this situation. You know, at Dearborn, there's a line that forms in the morning before the doors open. 
Awful, awful situation to deal with. How do you talk to a line of people? Bad enough talking to one. How do you talk to one? So I decided to single this guy out because that's eventually what you got to do. You got to scan. You got to single somebody out. So I was talking to this guy, and he was starting to threaten. Again, I think he would have carried out his threat. But I just dropped my voice very, very low, and I just kept asking him questions. And the reason he couldn't hit me is because I had asked a question, and he had to answer it. So I just kept asking questions. And in the process of answering, he got away from the idea of flattening the wimpy English teacher standing in front of him. So his girlfriend is like this, hanging on his arm. Sir, look at her. Look at her. The trust that she has in you. And you're going to abuse that trust. You're going to take her into this place. All in a whisper. Why? What good is this abortionist going to do her? And then once he referred to her as his old lady. Sir, listen. The way you just talked to her. Old lady. Is that the way you refer to your wife? And the, the violence that you're exhibiting right now. Look at it. Look at the violence that you're exhibiting. Is this what you want for her? What you want for your child? Bring him back. Bring him back to earth, as Mrs. Wong said. I was going to ask, uh, do people ever bring their children to do sidewalk counseling? Would you recommend doing that or not doing that? Do bring your children with you? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I have brought them most of the time. These two in particular. One time she asked me not to stop going to the abortion clinic. Not to stop. And it was hard for them because sometimes I would leave them in the car with the doors and the windows and everything open, parked right in front of me and, you know, things like that. So for them to stay there for two hours playing in the car and just watching me and coming out, and it was hard. But still she was able to understand what we were doing there. And they always asked me how did I do at the abortion clinic. It's important for them, and they understand it. So it's okay to bring them, I think. Sometimes now I leave them. This one has come with me even to the urban clinic at times. And you just do whatever you can do, you know. They know they want me to do it. Mr. Miller, what do you do if somebody threatens to run you over in their car? Has somebody threatened to run you over? Well, no one's ever threatened to run me over. What if somebody comes up to you and says, I'm going to get in my car and drive over you? Or what if somebody is actually in a car and comes up on the sidewalk? Yeah, or who drives at you in such a way as to threaten you and fear for your life. That happens often. It's happened to you? I can comment on this. It's happened to me twice. And recently when I was holding signs, which I can understand, but I was told both the other two times that I should have called the police, but I never had the presence of mind to find the license plate. I mean, at the time, they sped off, and I was too shook up to look. But just this past Saturday, it did happen to me and my husband. Praise the Lord. I remember to look at the license plate and called the police immediately. And they went into the parking lot, found the car, and went into the building to find the person. And as I speak, I'm hoping we'll be able to get in court with this person. I'm not one of these people who wants revenge, but I feel like I'm a citizen. (laughs) And you can't threaten me with something that could kill me, which is a car. So I think that person needs to know that. That's why we're doing it just for a statement so that in the future, you know, may end up in the paper that they won't be threatening our rights. We can stand there on the sidewalk. It's our right to speak the truth and show the truth. This will be a first for me, so you can find out later what happens. 
Well, that was a situation which Barb was holding one of the large graphic signs. And when you do that, yes, that's the situation in which you have to watch for motor traffic because you're out in the midst of it. And yes, this has happened many times before, specifically with the Face the Truth tours, the situations in which people are lining the block with these five-foot signs, photographs of aborted babies. You're going to enrage people when you do that. Ideally, with sidewalk counseling, you have a different purpose. You have a different mode. Instead of being blatantly pro-life, I'm here holding the big five-foot sign, you want to be as inconspicuous as possible. You want an atmosphere of quiet so that that kind of environment usually doesn't bring out that kind of response. I don't know of anyone who has been vehicularly threatened while sidewalk counseling. I just... I. You. This is at Planned Parenthood. They did call the person. They admitted to doing it, but then she didn't follow through and press charges. So she was standing near the street. She was down at the end by Planned Parenthood. Yeah. So, I mean, it does happen, even the people who are just standing. Uh, Again, this is a situation where someone is by the street, on the tree lawn. And, again, that's where you got to look out for it. you got to be ready for it when it happens. In some of the rescues that we did, people were run over during rescues. In some rescues, instead of blocking the doors, the rescuers would block driveways, would block motor access into the clinic. They were threatened in a couple cases run over by cars. So, But for sidewalk counseling, especially at Alexander's Place, there there's somewhat of a risk because much of your sidewalk counseling is done in a parking lot, especially if he takes appointments into the back door then that sidewalk counselor is standing right in in the midst of a parking lot. So there, yes, you would have to be wary. That's the best defense is just to be watching for it and don't be taken by surprise. Sidewalk counselor has to always have his head up and not be distracted. Today on Putting on the Mind of Christ, we've all been in training in training to either become abortion mill sidewalk counselors or the prayer warriors who support them. You heard Alicia and Edmund talk about the people who support their work to save the lives of these most vulnerable of our brothers and sisters. No matter where you are geographically, there are pro-life groups in need of your support. Do some prayerful searching or Googling for a group you can support with time, talent, or treasure. We thank Barb Harburg, Edmund Miller, and Alicia Wong and their families for their pro-life work and devotion and for their sharing of their wisdom with us today. A CD of this program is available for $8.50. Order program number 230. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 or email orders at avemarieradio.net. Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild. To assure continuation of programs like this, we encourage you to become a radioactive Catholic and join the Ave Maria Communications Guild. Phone 877-288-1077. 877-288-1077. Or go to amcguild.org on the Internet. Catholic Radio, it's yours to keep. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Until next week, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.